Hey guys, this is Ishai Breslauer and welcome to the CRE Shark Eye Show where we discuss commercial real estate. On Mondays, we dive deep into an asset class and on Thursdays, we go into some inspirational stories for the weekend. Can't wait to start. Let's go. Hey guys, before we continue, I would like to introduce you to the seven day CRE challenge, which will introduce you to commercial real estate and will show you that anyone can do this. Also, I have the free cheat sheet for commercial real estate with the six best secrets for commercial real estate. You can download it free. Just click below or above wherever it is and get it. Let's continue. Hi guys, this is Ishai Breslauer, your host of the CRE Shark Eye Show, where we discuss commercial real estate. Mondays, we dissect the market, we get into the data, we get into the asset class, and also we discuss some inspirational stories. Thursdays, I always dedicated to the inspirational part. Today's Monday. Why Monday? We're all pumped up to go to work, to go and do what we love, which is CRE, commercial real estate, and get into the deals and get what we have, what we love to do and find the great deals and to have the shark eyes for the great deals. And today we have a guest. And uh, to uh, introduce him properly, I would call him, uh, first of all, he's, uh, he's an all-around type of guy. And you're going to understand what I'm talking about when we hear him talk, okay? His name is Gad Regensberger. He's a managing partner of Lauda Real Estate Investment Firm, which he founded, okay, which focuses on student housing which we're going to talk about a lot today. He's also the chief engineer of the Fain organization and the guest lecturer at Brown University and happens to be also my second cousin in a way. And uh, he has over 15 years of experience. Uh, he manages a pretty nice amount of student housing apartments. We're going to hear all about this. And he's a self-made guy. You want to hear his story. So let's dive into it. Gad, how are you? Thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Shai. Thank you for having me. I have full disclosure. I say you're my, he's my second cousin. And so, you know what I'm saying? You got to, you know, I got to say that. But uh, I say very proud of what you did. And uh, you have a very phenomenal story. Um, before we dive into your particular story, which I would really like to do, um, just tell us on the surface, we're going to dive deep into it. Like, like as we go. But first of all, if you could tell us just a little bit, where are you today, which are number of companies, number of things that you do just on the surface without getting into, you know, into too much detail because we're going to talk about it later. Tell us. Thank you. Today, I, uh, I, I have two things that I do. One, I founded, as you said, our real estate. That was back in 2016. I grew the business to several million dollar business, uh, substantial business. That's what I do on my own. I have learned most of the things from uh, the guy I'm working for. His name is Jason Fain. Uh, in my opinion, a titan has changed the world personally, in my opinion. Um, Jason has built a company from almost nothing up to about, I would say, 1,200 tenants, um, privately owned. He owns everything. Uh, his investment, investment strategy is quite different than what you know. He doesn't look at IRR, ROIs, returns. That's not the way we look at things. Even in my own business, not, that's not the way I look at things. Returns are great, but we look at the essentials and the intrinsic value of the assets. We, we care more about that than anything else. Uh, we look at not just how much we can win or profit, 
rather how much we can afford to lose and for how long we can do so. Uh, with that being said, um, as we as, as you shared, we're going to dive into it more lately, more later. Uh, it's more about what is the asset, what is the fundamental of real estate in our opinion, where it's going to go to, and what's the value. Uh, so pretty much, I speak to you guys from here, Rockefeller Center, New York City. Uh, still alive. New York is still alive. We're going to talk about New York. We're going to get to it. Don't worry about it. Okay, so right now what I want to do, um, you have a pretty cool, phenomenal story on your own. And uh, it started. And uh, tell, tell, me, tell me a little bit about it. Meaning, let's, 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 let's go back. Let's go back with the years and see where you came from. So how you got to where you got to. Let's go. Thank you. So I, as, as you probably do know, as we're family, I grew up in a settlement um, next to Yerushalayim. Um, regular life. Nahalut. Um, grew up in a religious family. Enjoyed life. And uh, I was lucky that after the military, I had the opportunity to serve in a delegation with the United States government. At that delegation, I have met Judge Frank Caprio, which was my first mentor. Um, and he pushed me to do the transition from Israel and relocate to the United States. Um, he pushed me to go into civil engineering and structural engineering in his opinion, which he was right at the time, but I didn't know that, as I wanted to be a mechanical engineer. As you know, my father is a mechanical engineer. I wanted to be a mechanical engineer. He said that, to his credit, he said that uh, it will be easier to open your own company as a structural and civil engineer in real estate than open a factory as a mechanical engineer. It's much less debt and much less capital required. You can grow yourself faster and better if you have any, any interest in that. Based on his recommendation, I flew back to Israel uh, and I uh, transferred from Tel Aviv University studying mechanical engineering into um, civil engineering, structural engineering, and Ben Gurion University. While studying at Ben Gurion University, I still kept in touch with Judge Caprio for years. Still, we are um, 16 years later. Um, we're very close. And as I grew and I established more. Uh, uh, experience in structural engineering. I was a designer. I designed bridges for a year and a half, two years. Thereafter, I worked as a contractor in Israel. I built several big projects. Some of them you might have seen. I built Strauss um, logistical plant on Route 6, very close to Teva factory. You can see it from Route 6. I have built 121 houses in Omer. I built two buildings in Leva City, Be'er Sheva. And I Several started, locations in Israel. Yes, yes. All yeah. more, you know? For the and people I, who don't know where it is. <laughs> oh, yeah. True. Then I felt it's not for me. I, I, where I felt it the most was building the houses in Israel in Omer in, as part of uh, Malibu, which went bankrupt since then, but at the time was a big company. And I remember giving the keys away, and I hated it. I felt like I built this whole project from nothing. I remember when it was just dirt putting the piles, putting the transfer slabs, the columns, the beams, build it all out, and then I give the keys away, I didn't want it. That was one thing. And the second, I really wanted to become... Well, what do you mean you didn't want it? You didn't want what? I didn't, want to, 
houses I build. If I build something, I want to keep it. I put all the sweat and tears into it. I don't want to. I don't want to give it away. If I build, I got it. You, I got it. You felt that you gave it away, even though it was good quality. You just said, if it's not for me, I don't want. I don't want to do that. That that is that what I'm saying? Correct. I got it. So hard. And then I remember which column I had problems with, which apartment 587. I had another problem with the transfer slab and 535. I still remember the numbers of the apartments. I had a problem with the pile that didn't went all the way through. Then 550 had a problem with one of the one of the shear walls that collapsed, and we had to fix that. I had done so much. I put in so much blood, sweat, and tears into the into the project, and then giving it to someone else that owns it. I didn't want to do it anymore. And then I moved to the next project. And then the other, the next one, just over and over and over the same cycle. I, I, I didn't want that. After three projects, I felt that that's, that's enough for me. Now I want to start owning those projects. In addition to that, at the company I was working for at the time, which was a public traded company, there was a vacancy in one of the executive branches within the company. And I wanted to get that position. And the CEO or the owner of the, of the public traded company said to me, I should get some more gray hair, which now I have a lot of, but back then I was younger. You uh, should get run away from that one. Yes. He said, you should go to MBA school, pursue your MBA and come after two, three years. I was at the time 27 and I felt that I was ready to assume more responsibilities. He said, go to MBA school, be 30, 32, then we'll talk. Uh, and still, I was in good connection with Judge Caprio. I used to fly to the United States every year to meet with him. I called the judge, and we thought about it together. And he said, you know what? Try to pursue MBA elsewhere. So I did. I pursued my MBA at Brown University, Harvard, Duke, and others. I ended up going to Brown University, where I graduated at the entrepreneurship school. Um, still having great relationship with Judge Caprio. And after graduating, I remember going to BCG, Boston Consulting Group, McKinsey, and other consulting firms and finances, all the other people. As you know, that's the, that's the culture here. You graduate business, you go to Wall Street. It was just not for me. I, I didn't feel the click, just didn't click in. So I remember one, I think it was Christmas back in 2012, 2012, I sat down with Judge Capra and I said, Wall Street is not for me. Do you know anyone in real estate? So he called in a friend of his, Jimmy Leach. And uh, I sat down with Jimmy and Jimmy said, oh, I know Jason Fain. He's a great developer in New York, builds in Canada and all of North America. I can arrange the meeting, which he did. I had six days interviews with Jason until the point he made the decision to hire me. And since then I'm with him. And that was back in 20, I started the interviews with him at the end of December of 2012 started working for him in 2013, July of 2013. So we're talking about almost eight years now. July will be eight years. What would be the take, I would say, the takeaway, the main takeaway from you learning from Jason and from the organization? Your main lesson. My main lesson is numbers, is some people see numbers are not relevant. IRR, ROIs are just not relevant. What is relevant is the fundamental of the business. And what is the fundamental? Which is? Which is? In, in your opinion? 
real estate as a business, it's an inflationary business. It's inflationary. It's inflation. A brick is a brick, but a dollar changes its value. A brick stays a brick no matter what. And that's the reason we only deal with Ivy League schools and universities where Oxford was founded, founded in 980, Harvard 1636, Yale 1702. It's a long-living institution. And if you have inflation going towards you, which is, let's say, 2%, 3% a year, it's a great lever. Even better than the leverage that you have from the bank, it's a great lever out of time. Just time alone. And if you work close to universities where they grow as well, which we can go into it as well, it's a great value. It's a great intrinsic value. Harvard is not going anywhere. Harvard went through wars, civil war, independent war, uh, the big plague back in the 20s, uh, polio. Harvard is still there. It didn't win bankrupt. So therefore, if I can hold enough, I'll always have client, clients and tenants the question is price, and if I can bear those downturns. Um, okay, yeah. so, so so here's where I want to go now. So you learned all that, and you're running your chief engineer there in that organization. And then oh. you decide, I want also to build my own wealth, which is unique, because you are a combination that is really unique. And I would like to elaborate about that for a second. You have people who are entrepreneurs. They fall into the, they are, they are not fit, they are not hireable, they're not, uh, uh, how do you say, they cannot be a part of an organization, a corporation. They're not that, right? You have those guys. And then right. you have those guys who are completely uh, tied to a corporation. They can go and make a career, uh, you know, whether you call it a nine to five job or even a career that is very impressive career, but they will never be able to go on their own even though they can make very impressive for themselves, right? They can do it really nicely in those organizations. But, and that I share with you, by the way, that part, and you are a part of a, of, I would say, a, um, a breed of type of people who can actually work for an organization or family office, do very well, and at the same time, be entrepreneur. So what is the turning point when you said, hey, I want to do it for myself? Mm -hmm. Great question. When I graduated Brown, I had five options to, to pick from. And Jason wasn't the one paying the most. I had others that paid more. But as you said, it's a corporation. I knew that I'll be there and I'll just stay within the corporation and move from one place to another. And I didn't want that. I want to have my own time. I want to make my own luck, my own. To me, being an employee, it's, at the end of the day, someone else makes the decisions for you. I, I can tell you from close family members during Corona, they got fired uh, because the company went bankrupt. I rather have things that I build on my own to make sure that I have some stream of cash flows, even when times are hard. That's one. Two, when I assured I had several options with Jason, and what made the appeal for me to go with Jason was a phenomenal individual. I thought, uh, evidently, that he was the right mentor for me. He's brilliant. He's one of the most phenomenal people in, in, in the world, in my opinion, has changed the world. Um, and he was okay with me buying properties on my own and going on my own. Actually, the first transaction I ever did, he helped me. I had no visa, I had nothing. He came with me to 
a bank. The bank didn't want to lend me money. He said, all right, if they're not going to help you as you are my employee and I asked them to help you, I'm going to teach them a lesson. He pulled $10 million out of the checking account in that bank. And he moved the money into TD Bank. Where That's incredible. That's an incredible sign of loyalty and, uh, and dedication. He helped me close the mortgage in 30 days and, got a, and I got a 2.2%, 2.24% uh, mortgage rate. And, and it was him. I mean, he helped me. He was the one pushing for me to do the first deal. I, I didn't even read the contract. I remember getting the contract. I looked at him and I said, Jason, what do you think? And at that point in life, it was the first transaction I ever did. And he was the one pushing. He found the deal. He told me I should get it. I should buy it. As I said, I remember sitting with him in, at his lawyer's office, Doug Owens. And I, will, I looked at Jason and said, Jason, what do you think? Is the contract fine? And I didn't even read the contract. He looked at me and said, God, you need to look at the factors and make a decision. If you sign this contract, you're an entrepreneur and you own real estate. If you don't, you'll continue working as an executive. So you have to make a decision. I didn't even read the contract. I didn't. And I signed it. Uh, so what I wanted to ask you is about, you made the shift, you went into student housing, and that's what the thing that you actually learned about from Jason. That's what you wanted to do. Uh, talk to us a little bit about this. Uh, you said before that it was an inflationary business uh, and it's not a numbers game. Please tell us what you mean about that and why student housing is, is actually giving the answer for those issues. As we all know, inflation pays off debt. Um, when you peg your mortgage for 15 years fixed rate or even 30 years fixed rate, um, and let's assume inflation is 2% a year. I went, in my opinion, it went low. 30 multiplied by 2, which if we go on a straight line, is 60%, which we're not a straight line. The equation, as we all know, is 1 plus i, which is the interest rate, to the power of n, which is the number of years. Um, but let's assume it's a straight line, it's 60%. So 60% would pay off your debt if you have a 30-year fix, which, as we all know, commercial lending, you don't have 30-year fix, but you can't have 10-year fix or seven-year fixed, um, you, let's take seven, which is more common as commercial real estate lending. So if you have seven-year fixed and 2%, 3%, in my opinion, it's three. Other people would say two. Let's say 2%, it's 14% uh, would be paid off just by inflation. And if you add to that the growth of those institutions, which is at about 2 to 4%, you have 14% of growth. Now, as we all know, Ivy League universities are very old. If you take New Haven, there's a lot of landmark building within surrounding the campus. So therefore, the amount of properties available are very finite, very closed. There's a number. And if there's a growth of the university of 2-3% and you have inflation of 2%, just by time value of money and growth of the institutions, you made 30-40% um, value the profit I would say um, just by time without you doing anything anything um, and as we all know it's demand and supply the clientele that you have within those institutions is a great clientele Jason had a tenant her name was Cornelia Vanderbilt Whitney um, if you're familiar with the with the name the Vanderbilt's so that was right. a great daughter of course uh, she was Jason's tenant I had a tenant that her father is the agent for Elton John and Phil Collins. 
Uh, another tenant of mine, his father is the managing director of Merrill Lynch. Um, you're talking about very affluent people that goes into those institutions. Um, we had a case in Ithaca where a child of those, one of those institutions, um, one of those affluent people, um, I think he was a Cornell student, but in any case, he was so drunk that he passed out, his head hit the, the toilet and there was a flood and five apartments below got, um, um, I won't say ruined, but got, were affected by the water. The father came in, wrote us a check for $50,000 and he paid for the damage. You talk about having, having good having tenants like that, right? It's a huge advantage for sure. Yeah, for sure. Our percent. Uh, even during Corona, we had no bad payments. I mean, everybody paid. Everybody tell, paid. Tell, so tell me a little bit about that. Okay, so so these guys, um, so so there's a huge, I would say, appreciation that is not the real appreciation that everybody talks about. It's just the general. Uh, organic growth of those institutions that causes that, you know, that actually the value to go up in that way. Right. Okay. And right. that's why you don't want to look at the, at the, at the typical IRR because it doesn't matter because your property doesn't make a difference. It makes a difference because the, the that institution makes the whole area just blow up in a way, but not blow up, gradually grow. Uh, meaning mm -hmm. that that would be that would be the right thing to say. Right. But right now, here you have COVID, okay? And COVID hit everyone, and some people got more affected out of it. Meaning COVID, and some people got affected much less. But everybody was affected in some way. Some hopefully not in the health ways, but in financial ways, all kind of ways, right? Everybody spoke about the universities that actually student housing got hit. Why? Because kids don't have to pay. They left, and that's what I want to hear from you, from your yeah, experience. Better. And what is the difference between, let's say, your properties and other type of student housing properties that did get hit? We have actually done better. We have done better this year. Uh, Cornell shut down their dormitory. Ithaca College shut down their dormitory. Brown University shut down their dormitory. And there was a huge influx of individuals, of students that were looking for housing. We actually have done better. If I would have oh. known that what will happen, I would have not rent on a discount prices back in June, July. I would have waited. So I think they've announced it around August or September. They've announced it. Uh, I should have waited because when the influx came in, people were picking up apartments left, right, and center. Um, it was phenomenal. Uh, it was a great year. Why, why would they do that if they could learn remote by Zoom like we're doing now? Oh, that's a great question. Universities have, what do universities sell? Universities sells chairs, that's what they sell. If uh, we look at Harvard or Yale, their tuition is 80 grand, 80,000 a year, 70,000 a year, within that range. A one bedroom apartment in New Haven is, let's say the highest one will be 3,000, $3,500 a month. So 36, 40,000 a year, just ballpark it. They make double double the amount on a chair than they make on a one-bedroom apartment. One. Two, the professors, all of them have tenureship. Three, Ivy League doesn't sell just education. It sells student life. It sells 
a cohort. It's a, a group that you grow with and you are part of it. And that's something you can't get through Zoom. In Israel, I think we used to have Universita Ptucha, the open university. They had remote learning. That didn't work. Um, open university now have their own campuses where people come in and students come in and, and they learn. It just doesn't work. The nature of human being, we need to have someone tells us what to do, teach us. Um, in my opinion, Zoom would not prevail within the um, Ivy League institution. You might have okay. some classes. Okay, so here's the big question. Here's the big question, because I have a daughter who is in university right now, okay? She's in, she's in college right now. And um, here's the big question. She's doing fine not going to university. She's doing all the classes by Zoom. She doesn't love it. She's not enjoying it. She doesn't like it. And that is very similar to every college around the United States. You have a lot of colleges that are not Ivy League. And people are going to those colleges. And today what they're doing is they're going and doing classes by Zoom. Now, here is the big question. Are they different from the Ivy League because what you said, because the Ivy League is more is selling something or giving something that is beyond just being in school? Is that, is that the reason? I think the third tier universities would not have any more space within the, what I would call educational businesses out there. Um, you have to have an advantage and some universities don't. And students understand that they don't need to go to a third-tier university and pay a lot of money where they can do that online. And there's a specific kind of students and intellectual challenges that those would teach. Those means the third-tier universities. Um, in my opinion, as the Spanish flu, Spanish flu has been around in the 1920s, 160 million people died worldwide. Harvard is still here. Brown is still here. Um, Yale is still here. Cornell, UPenn, Oxford, Cambridge, and so on and so forth. I don't think that those universities would go away. And remember, the acceptance rate right. of those top tier universities is 4%. So instead of being at 4% acceptance rate, they'll be at 7%. But they will still have students. At 10%, they'll still have students. Let me ask you this, because this is really, really crazy. What about if you could walk us through with an example? It doesn't have to be your real example. But from what you experienced, you don't have to reveal your numbers, but walk me through through a theoretical property, which is similar to what you went through with your properties and how, what type of appreciation it went through and the, the value, you know, that it increased. Give us a little bit of a glimpse of how it works. Do you want the best one or the worst one? Um, let's do both. <laughs> I'll start with the worst one. The worst one I bought, that was the second property. After the first one I did with Jason, where he told me what to do and was very, very successful. The second one, Jason, I, I decided to buy a majority shareholder in a condominium building. Um, so I bought three condos. Well, what did you say, a condominium what? A condominium building very close to Brown. Oh, building. Okay, go ahead. I bought, the, I bought a majority. And 
as a good Israeli, I came in wrongly, and I thought that I can start changing things within the board and change things within the within the building and do whatever I want because I had the majority, uh, the majority shareholder. I didn't have the majority, but I had thirty eight percent of the building. And uh, that was a mistake. They took me with lawyers, and it cost me a lot of money. Now, it is now four years later. It looks awesome. looks great. Valuations have went up. Rents went up. Brown University just built a new engineering school a block and a half away from me. On a IRR, it looks good. But it took four years and a lot of mistakes that I should have not done. I, for the first two years, I've lost money. But now it looks great. As I said, Brown grew. As the, the main reason for me buying it, it was Brown was about to build their new engineering school. He was uh, very close to it. And um, the intrinsic value was there, as we have shared. It's about the trajectory, what will happen. It's a living organism, Brown. So, so in percentages, what, what, what would you say that was, you know, around, give and take? Four years. I've recouped 80% of my investment within four years. That's not bad at all. Now, that's the worst one. That's the worst. Okay, so let's go to the best one now. The best one was a home run. I wish to have a one like that every year, but it's hard. The best one, I bought it from a family that owned the building since 1897. Wow. My grandfather owned it. And he passed it through the generations and he grew the fam the business, the family business quite a bit. And they made the decision after the grandfather owned it, the father, and now the kids are in their 50s. And the father is in his 80s. And the father retired two years ago. And the kids made the decision. Everything that is a lot of work, the father also owns real estate, like uh, commercial real estate, office space, not just student housing. And they made the decision that everything that is a lot of work and no long leases, they don't want. In student housing, your retention is about a year. So every year, you will probably need to turn over between 50 to 80% of your property. Every year, people move in, move out, move in, move out. Students. And they made that decision, they don't want it. So they didn't manage it quite well, but I bought it at a five cap. And they didn't want to deal with turnovers. They didn't want to deal with student housing and family. But the rents that were collecting were very low. They weren't managing it very well. I bought it and I paid 25% down. No, 30. I had to put in 30. It was non-recourse. Uh, it was non-recourse. So I bought 30% down. And um, I was lucky that Brown University just built a new um, political science department building four blocks from me. And my rents tripled. So on an NOI base, I made seven times on my equity. That's amazing. That's the best one I have. That is crazy. That is really amazing. That is really outstanding and, un, how do you say, irregular. But if we go now um, to a normal type of deal, why would anyone do this? Why would anyone go to this type of deal uh, versus a classic multifamily deal or any other deal? Why do people take annuities, security, in my opinion? And, and as I shared with you uh, earlier, I have looked at deals here in Manhattan. I have looked at deals of ground-up development. And I'm looking at the risk-reward, but 
what can I lose and what can I make? And it always come down back, it always come back down to, I feel more comfortable with Ivy League University where I know I'll have clients and the price of the clients. I know my tenancy. I never had to, I think once I had to negotiate a tenant. It wasn't even in an Ivy League school. It was the only property I owned next to, uh, in Toronto, which is more working class. It's in Yorkville. It's the equivalent of Fifth Avenue, but working class people, Wall Street people. That's the only, only individual I ever had to pay for them to leave my property. Everything I own within Brown University or in an Ivy League school, I never had to kick someone out. They were all good tenants. No problems. That's and amazing. Having good tenancy and quiet is worth a few points less in my IRRs. But as I told you, if I pick right and I know which university is going to grow to, and there's a reason how I know where they're going to grow to, and, and there's a methodology to it. Um, so five What years, is in short? So, tell me something. I'm sorry I'm stopping you, but, you know, this whole thing, it's, um, it sounds like a very specific uh, very, I would say, focused type of uh, professionalism that you got into, right? right. right. Um, what is the philosophy in the numbers behind, I meaning it's not a philosophy, it's the technicality, okay, behind the numbers in the universities that makes them grow that much? You told me once, if you could, yeah. if you could, if you could share the secret with... By everybody. all, they have to spend 5% of their income. That's the IRS law for them to be tax exempt. If we take New Haven, for example, which is Yale, they have $42 billion total assets and they have $38 billion cash. Cash, cash on hand. They have to spend about $200 million a month because the university is closed 10 months, uh, two months a year. They're only open 10 months. People have to write checks. The accounting department has to write checks and spend the money, but they are only open 10 months. So in 10 months, they have to spend $200 million a month, which is... I remember I did the calculation once, 21 days, it's $10 million a day. It's about a million dollar, million dollars an hour. How do you spend a million dollars an hour? Which you have to bear in mind, those top universities want to still be the top. So they have, they need to have the top of the line laboratories. They need to have top of the line facilities and they grow. As we shared about, they're not in the business of selling um, education. They're in the business of selling chairs because every chair, they get $80,000 a year in uh, tuition fees. Um, and they have their own pensions, they have their own um, um, professors, they have tenureships, so they have to pay all those overheads. Um, so they grow, they just grow, and they're not going to go bankrupt. They have more cash than more, most of the companies we know. That's incredible. Not only that it's incredible, that it makes complete sense that if they have cash, and they have money that is lying down there, and they have to actually spend it, like you said, a million dollars. A day, what it was? What was it? It's about a million dollars, million dollars a day. Yeah. That's not normal. So if they have to do that, it's obvious that they're going to, it's, it's, it's so correct, so right that they would use it for real estate, meaning rehabbing or buying new properties or, you know, they have to put it somewhere. And that would obviously get the whole area to, to go and grow. Right. Tell me something. I, I, I want to move. That's beautiful. It's, it's not only an amazing story, but it's a story about how to get focused about one particular asset class and become top expert at it. And I love that. Let's move on for a second um, to talk about, in general, the market before we, we how do you say, we close. I want to discuss a little bit 
we had COVID. COVID is happening. You're also a finance guy. And you're also a guy who is looking at the financials. And we discussed it. I remember when we, when we were in New York in length. Where's the market going in your opinion? Oh, wow. That's a great question. A, I think there's several markets. It's just one market. And right. Israel is very different than the United States. Right. Exactly. Let's talk about America because America will drag the entire world with it. I, I'm not really sure for the main reason. Israel will have displation. Displation is the worst thing for real estate. Worse. If inflation is great, displation is tremendously painful for real estate owners, especially if you have debt. Because if your shekel is worth more and you have one shekel in your pocket, you're wealthier. But if, you, if, you have, if the shekel is worth more and you have a million shekel of debt, you are poorer. So you lost money. And how is that relevant to the United States? The United States is printing money left, right, and center. Crazy. And they're creating inflation. More will than ever. High, will it be hyperinflation? I don't know. But it, there will be inflation. If there will be inflation in Israel, the shekel is getting stronger. Israel can't buy $5 trillion. They just can't. Up until now, Israel were printing money and buying dollars to devalue the shekel. I don't think it could work in no longer. They've just announced they're going to buy 50 billions of dollars. I don't think they can afford buying 50 billions of dollars. 50 billion of dollars sitting cash on their asset book means that it's half the Israeli national uh, GDP. I think it's 118 billion. So let's say it's a third of Israel's GDP. You can't put your third of your GDP on your assets book and not touch it just to devalue the shekel. It's just not going to work. And the more the current administration in the United States would spend, the stronger the shekel will be. In my opinion, within a year or two, Israel will go to financial uh, ruin, financial collapse because of, of the strong shekel compared to other currencies. And it's all over the world. If That's a very interesting Europe, observation. What do you think about, let, let's go back to America and talk a little bit about Europe also. Uh, uh, what do you think will happen right now? Right, uh, the, the markets are in all times high. You have uh, overpriced. We see what Elon Musk is writing uh, about his own company. We know that the over, how they say it's uh, it's overvalued. Everything is is crazy valuations, and the real estate is in a very interesting place right now. And there are so many opinions. I have my own opinion about this, but I want to hear yours. As I shared with you, due to the amount of printing, the dollar printing that America has. Inflation would grow. So that means asset price would come up because of inflation. Could you hold that for a long time? No. It will be a time where the market would collapse on its own weight. You can't print money and never pay it back. I know that AOC or Critical Affairs is in favor of that, but you just can't do that. It's not going to work. You can't be Argentina where you've collapsed on your debt twice. Who, who, who would look at the United States again? if they would not pay their bonds or their uh, debts. The United States, I'm not really sure where it's gonna go. For now, it seems that inflation is gonna go up. Either there will be a financial ruin within five years, four years, three years, I don't know. Um, for now, America has solvency. They, they, have, they have resources, they have talent, they have cash, they have or cash equivalent. 
they do have some. Um, so I don't see problems there within the short term, not the long term. Long term, absolutely, yes, there is a big problem. Because, because it's interesting because, you know, what you said now is interesting uh, because it's complete the opposite of what Ray Dalio, for example, is saying and, uh, and other experts. But I want to move for a second to real estate, which is what we do. Um, so in some ways, we know what's happening in New York. We see what's happening in New York. Um, and I had a very interesting, actually, uh, interview with a friend of mine who is also a broker. Um, and it's going to air in a few days. But basically, we spoke about New York City and the valuations that are dropping like crazy. And, and also the moving and the, you know, the exodus from those big cities, San, San Francisco, New York City, you know, California in general. But, uh, and they're going to the different areas that, you know, we know that are experienced the growth, like Florida, like Texas, like Idaho, et cetera, et cetera. What is, in your opinion, where is, from your perspective, the real estate market is going? Because you looked at different type of deals and you said, I'm not getting into those deals. In my opinion, what creates that exodus and the issue within those cities, those being on the West Coast, the one you mentioned, New York City is here, um, it's policy. It's the mayor and the other policies they have in place. I mean, look at the Amazon. Amazon wanted to build a great opportunity, a great, um, uh, I think it was HQ2, they call it, headquarters two. In very close to where I live in Long Island City. Um, and the several individuals, which I can mention, one of them was uh, Octavia Cortez, were against it. Um, what they didn't say is that Citibank is leaving Long Island City and taking 16,000 jobs out. And you will have an influx of 20,000 people. And the argument they made that it will create a boom within Long Island City is just not true, not true. Um, AOC, if you look at her agenda and it's published in her mind, in her opinion, she would like to see um, real estate owners leave their assets and the city confiscate them. She wants to raise taxes and then and, and she wants to move everything from what she called rich to the poor, which is stupid. Then you see people like uh, Carl Icahn and others that just leave New York City and move elsewhere. I think it's mostly policies rather than one thing or the other, which with the corona, you see it much stronger, those policies and other issues. Um, the main reason you don't see as much people on the street, people don't feel safe. Now the defund the police, I think, uh, where was it? Minnesota, where they defund the police and now they want it back. They have too much crime. Same thing here in New York City. So, uh, um, Bill de Blasio shut down a lot of uh, agencies within the police, and now we have a lot of crime here. And I believe the next election here in, in, in the city, you will see change of policies and change of uh, direction within the city, and the city will come back again. It happened back in uh, 1988. It, it happened back. And, and then, if you remember, Giuliani became the mayor and changed New York quite substantially. Um, Question is, how many years do you think New York City is going to be back? Five, four to five years. Four to five years. I, I, we have the same opinion. Let me ask you this. Uh, okay, things are moving now away from New York and away from California and away from everything. We established that. 
Where, in your opinion, the real estate is going? And in one asset class, we're going to see uh, we're going to see uh, higher valuations, or appreciation, or opportunities. So these are two separate questions. One, you're right. Now, <laughs> or where will it go to? So the opportunity is not where the appreciation is currently happening. The opportunity, as we say, flash, buy low, sell high. I believe that the opportunity will be here in New York City or any of those other places, but you have to wait until policies, as the policy just put in place that you can't uh, uh, you can bring rental, uh, stabilized rental apartments back into the market and deregulate them. You can't, no longer. Um, but when the city would change their policies, that will be the right time to buy and you'll see the opportunity, which you talked about the opportunity. As uh, Warren Buffett says, when there's blood on the street, buy. When you see enough blood here in New York City, it, it will be the opportunity. With that being said, the, the appreciation move is probably not here. As, as you were mentioning, Texas, Florida, and other places which are more free. Free, I'm talking about business-wise. Texas has much better business climate than California or New York City. Same goes to Florida. Um, I will see great opportunities there currently as we speak and appreciation on that point of view. But I have a good friend of mine. His name is Wayne Cheng. Wayne Cheng is the owner or used to be the owner of Crashalytics. He had a bunch of stocks, part of the owners for uh, Twitter, Dropbox, Fireflyer, and others. Big name entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur. And he said to me when he built Crashalytics, if you go on the field, try to swing once. Don't swing, 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 swing. Find the right ball. And as an entrepreneurs, different than baseball players, we have the opportunity and the luck to let the balls fly over us and not to get striked out. You don't need to have three balls to strike out. You can wait there until just the right sweet spot ball that you can hit it all the way through the home run. And you don't need you don't need to swing. You can do the right thing once and be very successful. Just be right once, as we call it. Yes. Very and good. Yeah, what can I tell you? Thank you so much for being with Thank us you. on this show, on the CRE Shark I show. I appreciate that. And uh, and uh, this is a phenomenal story and very inspiring. And not only that people can make themselves something and can make a future for themselves, but they can actually become professionals in one, in one asset class, in one thing, and can crush it. So thank you for this. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Ishai. Take care. Okay, guys. So that was Gad Ragensberger. We had a very inspiring story. And what I want to tell you is pay attention to the links below above to find out more about him and also, if you want the free cheat sheet, the free uh, perfect six secrets for commercial real estate, you can download them in the link below. And also, if you want to go through the seven-day CRE challenge to get to know commercial real estate, if you are a beginner and you want to get introduced to that, that is your opportunity. And with that, guys, I'm going to tell you, take care of yourselves, and we're going to see each other on Thursday. Hey guys, thanks for joining me in this CRE Shark Eye Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And 
Go subscribe, download, do whatever you guys need to do. And I'll see you in the next episode. Take care of yourselves.